Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. When you meet someone you disagree with, you can either kill them, create a system to coerce them, run away, or do politics. That is one of several quotable quotes in our conversation today on democracy, socialism, and Christianity. Even if you're not political with a big P, meaning maybe you haven't gone to a protest, or you don't feel any particular fervor about voting, or you simply don't want to get into it with Uncle Terry on Facebook, both of our guests today would probably venture to say it's not easy to avoid being political. That is, if being political just means finding ways to negotiate our common life together. We welcome today the thinker and prolific writer on democracy and modern politics, Dr. Luke Brotherton, who is British but has given much of his professional lifeblood to American life and politics. Bless him. Dr. Brotherton is Robert E. Cushman Professor of Moral and Political Theology and Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke Divinity School, and the author of Christ and the Common Life, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy. I also briefly shared an office space with Dr. Brotherton at Duke, and I can vouch personally for his attention to the Commonweal, at least in an office suite. We're also honored to be joined by Dr. John Orens, who is the Professor of European History at George Mason University, and the author of Stuart Headlam's Radical Anglicanism, The Mass, The Masses, and The Music Hall. You gotta love that title. You can find links to both of our guests' books in the show notes. And we can't neglect to mention that our conversation is moderated today by Covenant blog author Dr. Stuart Clem, who's also Assistant Professor of Moral Theology and Director of the Ashley O'Rourke Center for Health Ministry Leadership at Aquinas Institute of Theology. Now, historically speaking, Christianity is in the very root systems of both democracy and socialism. So what philosophies what Christian ideals are at the heart of both of these systems of organizing common civic life? And how have they actually played out? 
Our guests today approach democracy and socialism not as buzzwords, but as ways of enhancing and guiding how we think of each other and how we approach citizenship in the communities and countries in which we find ourselves. And they uncover some fascinating history, like why and when did established churches make the turn towards supporting democracy, a system that sought to de-establish them as nationally governing bodies? Also, why were some of the great socialist figures in earlier generations Anglican? And what does this mean as we make decisions for how to live in our times? Let's listen and find out. And as always, if you want to let me know how you enjoy this episode or any of our episodes, feel free to email me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org. We are here today uh, to talk about democracy and socialism, two very contested terms that have taken on special significance within the last few years, especially in the United States. We typically think of democracy as a political model and socialism as an economic model, uh, but both of you in your own work have challenged these assumptions in various ways. Uh, for example, John, the figures that you study offered a comprehensive social vision that was rooted in a theological understanding of the human person. Uh, and Luke, in a recent essay that you wrote, you describe democracy this way. You say, by prioritizing society over state or market, covenantal forms of association are vital to upholding common values and a common life over and against their instrumentalization, commodification, or destruction through state-driven and economic processes. So Luke, why don't we start with you? Can you just tell us what are some, what do you think are some helpful and unhelpful ways to think about democracy? Sure, and it's great to be with you. I think one of the great confusions people make when we talk about democracy, we tend to reduce it to a system of government, a kind of structure of voting, we may think of the rule of law. We certainly think of the party political system and, and the kind of machinations in DC as really what democracy is about. Um, and if we particularly stretch our imagination, we might think about freedom of speech or those kinds of ideas. I, I think this is a, a common confusion and an understandable one, but a mistake. We really need to make a distinction between democracy as a mode of statecraft uh, rule of law, structures of governance, divisions of powers, uh, systems of voting, that kind of thing, um, i.e. a system for managing and controlling the state, and uh, democracy as a form of politics with a small p, which is what I would define it as the negotiation of a common life amidst asymmetries of power uh, and competing visions of the good. And that, that can sound highly technical, but think about... Um, uh, a, a priest and uh, the um, uh, it, those it, it, he's sitting with the PCC in his church or elders and a pastor uh, trying to negotiate whether to take the pews out of a church or not. It's highly contested, you know, it's this very kind of vehemently confort thing. Um, they're doing politics. There's different circulations of power. There's different visions of what the good, the vision of the church should be and how that's manifested in material form as we're having pews in or not. Um, and they're having to negotiate that through. Now, as we know through church history and as we know through political history, there's basically 
four options. When you meet someone you disagree with, you can either kill them, create a system to coerce them so you never have to listen to what they say and you can make them do what you want, run away, and we do that a lot in church, it's called schism, uh, or do politics. And, and, and democratic politics is the sense that each person has dignity, each person should have a say in their living and working conditions. And so whether that's economic democracy, you're living and working conditions of the firm or the shop or whatever, your care home or whatever it is, or a bigger polity or a neighborhood. So if, if I go out, the kids down the street making a noise, and I uh, uh, kind of say, hey, guys, can you keep it down a bit? You know, my kids are trying to sleep. And I don't call the police. I'm doing a kind of neighborly version of democratic politics. I'm taking seriously their voice. I'm not calling on statecraft to sort out the problem. And we're navigating a common life between us um, outside of mechanisms of statecraft. So I think that's a very key distinction to get on the table. And a lot of people get confused about that. Um, and But it's important. It kind of opens up an alternative vision of politics that statecraft doesn't exhaust what we mean by democracy and democracy and or we might say democratization operates all over the place and and it really confronts us the question of do i take seriously those i disagree with who are not like me or, or who i find scandalous and objectionable as a legitimate part of this common life we're trying to create and as having a say in their living and working conditions Thanks. Let's um, let's come back to some of those ideas uh, in just a moment. But John, uh, maybe if you could do something similar with the term socialism, are, are there helpful and unhelpful ways that, that that term is used in contemporary discourse? Well, uh, socialism is one of those, those, those terms that's bandied about so often that it's now almost impossible to understand what, what's meant by it. Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. People identify socialism with, with uh, communism, with Marxism. Um, in current discourse, it's become, in, in many people's minds, something of an epithet. And it's not particularly, I think it, it's a term that is, like democracy, so often abused, that um, in some ways, um, I wish that there were an, another word we could use rather than socialism. Socialism, as, as I understand it, and as I think the word was originally used, was not used as um, the opposite of capitalism. But socialism was uh, used as the opposite of possessive individualism. I think that socialism at its root, socialism at its root, is an understanding of human beings as essentially social beings bound to each other, bound to each other by bonds of mutual um, affection and um, mutual concern. Uh, the um, socialism, I think, is often misidentified. Perhaps this is, this is the point, and I was thinking of what Luke was saying about democracy, and that is that, that socialism is often identified simply as a, an economic system. Uh, the classic definition of economic socialism, the collective ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. But in fact, socialism involves something far deeper and far more complex than that. I think socialism um, at its root means an understanding of our 
social and economic life um, as something that requires, how can I put this, our mutual flourishing. Socialism is an understanding of the economy primarily as directed towards the um, deepest fulfillment, the deepest fulfillment of um, human, human longing. And the problem we have today, I think, is that socialism is like democracy and like that other word that's often bandied about fascism, used so loosely, used so casually, um, and used so heedlessly um, that I think it would be best in some ways, in some ways, to lay it aside for a moment and to talk instead about just what what the vision of our common life is. I'm interested in the way in which Christianity has uh, intersected with the developments of both the, the concept uh, of democracy and socialism, uh, not, and not just conceptually, you know, the way people have written about it, but the way that it's been played out historically on the ground. Um, for example, given the fact that at least on, on one, one telling, uh, democracy is wrapped up in, in notions of uh, disestablishing churches and not making sure that uh, one religion doesn't have too much power and so on. Why, why would Christians be interested or invested in a project like democracy? Sorry, you, I, I missed that. You were saying democracy is associated with disestablishing religion. Oh, I see, rather than it's socialism. I was going to say that's a very, yeah, you couldn't say that of socialism. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, again, I think um, it, it, it goes back to at a very, 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 very fundamental level. Do we think that it's a good idea as Christians? Do we think it's a Christian idea that when I meet someone I disagree with or who's not like me, I should kill them, coerce them, or run away. If you think that's a good idea, and lots of Christians, and still in America today, lots of Christians think, you know, for Christian reasons, I should kill them, or I should coerce them. I don't think that's a Christian idea. I think it's pretty explicit. There's a lot of stuff that Jesus says that counters that. I find it extraordinary that it's somehow people think that is, can those can be Christian ideas. Um, I think that some kind of negotiation of a common life based on the idea that I shouldn't kill and coerce people, that I should treat them as neighbors, even when they're my enemies, is a pretty fundamental Christian idea. And that is played out through democracy. Democracy is a, it, it, it basic, the basic moral commitment of democracy is that suasion and dialogue rather than killing and coercion and structures and systems that kill and coerce is a better way of solving collective problems than, you know, killing and coercing. Um, uh, and it takes seriously that each person has the dignity and intrinsic God-given worth that however much I disagree with them, that there is a deeper relatedness in Christ in whom all things and all people are created and through whom all things will be reconciled. So whatever separates us, whatever divides us, there is a deeper unity in Christ 
that's a basic Christian, the most basic Christian confession in the creeds elsewhere, um, that therefore uh, I can't, I shouldn't be killing and coercing others on a point of tax redistribution policy, of a point of medical systems. You know, how should we, you know, when we really look at the issues that we are in deep paranoia and distrust of others around, um, we should have a sense of the craziness of the point we've come to. And this, I think, goes to a very important point for our contemporary moment. Democracy depends on a gossamer thin thread of social trust. And uh, uh, it is the notion, two key ideas, the rule of law, a kind of level of statecraft, you can't legislate for the rule of law. It's a basic question of trust that law matters and law um, is a better way of, of solving conflicts. And the notion of a loyal opposition, um, that if I lose the election, I don't have to take to the hills with my AR-15 or AK-47, uh, and that I won't be kind of you know, terrorized and prosecuted if I lose the election. Now, lots of bits of the world, that, that's what happens. Um, it's a it's a zero elections are zero sum games that shouldn't be the case in democracy uh, like this one in the US. Um, unfortunately, lots of people think that that is what's at stake, and we saw that last week in when in the insurrection. Um, that's exactly a breakdown of the notion of a loyal opposition. Um, and so, I think the the cultivation of social trust through myriad small acts in neighbourhoods elsewhere. Uh, uh, scout troops, etc., and churches um, is the kind of lifeblood of a democracy, and uh, and and I think Christians do have a duty of care, born out of a notion of neighbour love, to re-neighbour society, and without that, democracy can't flourish. Um, we can't have de democracy either as a statecraft, as a mode of statecraft, or as a form of navigating common life. Uh, and so, I, I do think for very fundamental theological reasons and very pragmatic reasons. Uh, democracy is something Christians have a stake in being committed to and have a long history. The, I mean, the, the background history, and, and it parallels history of socialism, or that uh, in some ways history of socialisms, well, that's a, that's a more complicated story, but, but, but I think the turn to democracy in from the kind of 19th century onwards, and it was a prehistory going back to the Puritans and way beyond that, but the particular commitment to modern democracy is, a, a, is partly a response to the uh, rise of industrialization, the rise of the nation state, the rise of global capitalism, the rise of uh, kind of mass society and the social conflicts that all of these generate and the church has really confronted and had a huge fight internal to itself, both in the particularly in the Anglican Church and the, and the Roman Catholic Church in Europe, um, but then how that played out in in, in colonial contexts. About was the church going to align itself with anti-democratic reactionary forces that reinscribed kind of plutocratic or elite interests, established interests? Or was it going to look to democracy as a way of addressing these large-scale social problems and conflicts? And almost universally, it made that term. We can look, for instance, at Rerum Novarum in 1871, was, I think, yeah, 73, um, uh, uh, as the kind of initiation document of Catholic uh, social teaching. 
and similar moves in um, you, you have from F.D. Morris, who John's written on uh, uh, onwards from earlier. But this turn to democracy as a way of modulating social conflict in the face of these massive social changes that are coming in in the wake of industrialization, etc. So I think there is this there's this historical story to tell about why churches made the turn to democracy. But I think there's a rich theological ballast as that that drove that, that provided the theological energy for making that turn. We'd love if you'd consider sponsoring the Living Church podcast. You can choose a sponsorship level anywhere from 99 cents to 9.99 a month. If you enjoy what we do, if you find it edifying and entertaining, click the link to sponsor in the podcast description or in the show notes. It's a small gift, but for a nonprofit like us, it can go a long way. Thanks for considering. That's a really nice segue to the the question I'd like to ask John, which is about the intersection of socialism and Christianity historically. But I'd also like to make it a little more specific. Uh, John, the the figures that you've written on, uh, as as Luke just mentioned, uh, F.D. Morris and and others like Stuart Headlam, uh, these figures are Anglican. And my my question is. Um, is is that just who you know the figures that you happen to study, or do you think that there's uh, something about this? There's maybe something in the DNA of Anglicanism that has lent itself to the the way that these uh, figures uh, wrote about socialism. I think that there is something in the DNA of, of Anglicanism um, that at least contributed, provided the soil, as it were from which these figures emerged. Um, and I think that if you, part of it lies in the tangled relationship between the Church of England and the English state. Um, the Church of England as an established church, almost from the beginning, there was a kind of, how shall we put it, kind of communitarian ethos, a sense that the church is responsible for the welfare of the whole community. Um, there's a, a very interesting book, um, and I wish I could remember the author, um, and it was called The Godly Man in Stuart, England. And the argument of the author was that although Anglicans in the 17th century often found themselves politically um, siding with the pretensions of um, absolute monarchy, when it came to their understanding of what the obligations were of the church to the wider community, in that respect, they were often more inclusive than were their Puritan contemporaries. I often think of the very name of our prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, and the notion that this is the whole nation, rich and poor, high and low, all joined, as it were together. Um, now, to say that, though, doesn't mean that the Church of England was favorably inclined towards anything approaching socialism. And of course, the figures I've studied often had to battle against um, the uh, um, establishment 
Um, they were often ridiculed, mocked, persecuted. But nevertheless, I think that there is something in Anglicanism that provides at least one kind of soil from which um, a socialist outlook um, can grow. I was also thinking of something that, that Luke just um, said about democracy. And I think this fits in a bit. And that is that democracy is more than just a political arrangement. It's more than just a kind of mechanical form of statecraft. There is a culture to democracy. And it's something that the founders of this country, in fact, recognized. Um, they emphasized the importance of um, civic virtue, the sense that there was a moral obligation um, on the part of the whole citizenry to the welfare of the commonwealth. And when you think about socialism, and you think about socialism seen as a form of economics, we sometimes forget that the word economics comes from a Greek word meaning a household, oikos. And the question is, who belongs to the oikos? And the whole biblical story, if we want to talk about the theological foundation of this, the whole biblical story is the story of family. It's not a story of individuals of, or of individuals. It's the calling, as the, 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 one of the canons of uh, uh, the prayer book, uh, Mass, say, it's about the calling of Israel to be your own people. It's the calling of the church and running through um, scripture um, is this emphasis on justice, this emphasis on equality. And from the point of view of the Christian socialists, people I've studied, people like Morris and all of those who followed after, there is this, this emphasis on the kingdom of God, that what we are talking about um, is ultimately a vision of the world redeemed and restored. And it was... Um, one of these, these Christian socialists, uh, Percy Widrington, who back in the 1920s wrote that were the church, were the church to recover an understanding of the kingdom of God, it would make for a reformation compared to which the reformation of the 16th century would seem a small thing. Can I, can I ask John a, a question just on, on this? I think... Because I think that that idea, very interesting idea, the kind of contrast between the Puritans and the kind of inheritors of Archbishop Lord or others, you know, we might say moving into the 19th century. Um, would you say that within Anglicanism, there's this kind of conflict between what we might call a kind of patrician noblesse oblige social vision? where the sense that the church is not, we're not a gathered church, particularly in the English context, it's the church for the peoples of England, as it were, it's for the whole land and people, um, and therefore that sense of the whole. But there's one approach to that, which is a kind of the, the, the Downton Abbey model, if you like. It's a kind of sense of, you know, noblesse oblige of, of we should kind of look after the, the poor yeoman and, and, the, and the serf, um, which drives a lot of Anglican social engagement and was, was is a long-established kind of established church way of operating. 
and and the emergence of Christian socialism is a kind of conversion of that into a more bottom up form. And but but a lot of the folk you you've written on did have a kind of aristocratic back, background in their in their kind of family history, um, and and this is a this is a kind of conversion of that sense of your responsibility for the whole and participating in the whole but outside of that noblesse, noblesse oblige framework. Do you think that's a fair reading? I think that is. Um, and um, many of these Christian socialists did, in fact, come from a very privileged background. Uh, Conrad Knowles' grandfather was the Earl of Gainsborough. Um, Stuart Headlam's father was a wealthy insurance underwriter in Liverpool. And I would imagine that much of the family's wealth could have come from the slave trade. Um, what I find also intriguing is that from the very beginning, you see a certain sort of tension, and I think it's a re remarkably creative tension um, within these people. You go back to the Tractarians, for example, and on the one hand, um, they represent a backward-looking yearning for the organic society that they imagined existed in pre-industrial England. At the same time, a kind of restlessness and dissatisfaction with just that kind of privilege. You remember Harold Froude, one of the earliest Tractarians, up, up scornfully referring to what he called the gentleman heresy, the belief that it was the duty of a pastor to be the resident gentleman in a parish. And food um, um, at one point um, exploded and said uh, that how good it is to be done with the days of Tory humbug. <laughs> uh, I, think, so, I, think a, I think it's a really interesting, but I mean, I think the, the, there's this debate in socialism, debates about socialism more broadly, particularly in the British uh, context, where and it's going back to your your question earlier question Stuart about is um either socialism i would say or or democracy inherently secularizing force there is this idea of socialism and of democracy as kind of progressive i.e it's the there's a movement forward away from tradition away from religion away from the church uh, we've got to we've got to cut the shackles of the past to be free and all that's behind us all that's of the past is bad and all that's good lies in the future. There's obviously a very strong current in American thought at the moment is inherent in the idea of being progressive, not a term I like. I tend to think of it as something one doesn't want to hear when one goes to the doctor. You know, I'm sorry, Mr. Bretherton, what the condition you've got, it's progressive. Right? You're going to die <laughs> of the painful death very quickly. Um, you know, so I, that's what I think when people describe themselves as progressive. Uh, but there's this other way that emerged, particularly in the British New Left, in response to the suturing of, of a lot of progressive ideas into things like Stalinism and the kind of failure of modern progressive ideas in, in the fields of blood of, of the 20th century. Um, think of Russia, think of China, think of, of um, Pol Pot's regime, etc. And this kind of reckoning with actually socialism in the 19th century was as much a, an attempt to recover a past, a moral economy that had been lost in the face of capitalism and industrialization, as much as it was uh, an attempt to kind of 
think about a future that was more mutualist and reciprocal. Um, but it, it didn't have this inherent socialism and democracy. Neither of them are inherently progressive, either in the positive sense of they can both value tradition and look to the past for sources of ideal. Um, we can think of a kind of Burkean idea of, of democracy or a kind of um, uh, uh, um, Morris's view of uh, uh, almost a kind of romantic socialism as a recovery of this more organic agrarian kind of moral economy. Um, and I think that's, that's, those are ideas that have been lost. And so we have this, I think that's part of ang a, a, one of the geniuses of Anglism it has many problems uh, and, and uh, you know, is, by no means innocent in, in the, like the slave trade and the rest of it. We need to reckon with that history. But I think there is a very distinctive feature of Anglicanism as this ability to both, uh, it's, a, it's a modern form of Christianity, you know, emerges in the early modern period, that is both looking forward and looking back. Um, and, and it's both Catholic and Reformed. It's, it's, and, and Coleridge, who was a huge influence on a lot of early Christian socialists, has this great idea of this interplay of a principle of, of um, progress and, uh, um, oh, I forgot what it is, but basically the idea of you, you need to have this interplay of both curating the past and uh, ushering in the new. And we go wrong when we get that interplay wrong. We either become, let's just abandon the past, uh, or it's a kind of let's retreat to the past, um, as in make America great again. And and I think something about Anglicanism as a as a as a form of Christianity, it it always lives at that point of interchange between past and present, and sees that as a strength rather than as a failure. And I think that's key then to understand both democracy and um, and and socialism in in that light, rather than as inherently secularizing progressive movements. And and I think that that um, what we have here is a reminder as well that when we try to apply political terms um, to a religious context, uh, we often make a grave mistake. Terms like progressive, traditional, traditionalist, um, liberal, and conservative don't necessarily have much meaning or have radically different meanings when it comes to um, church, when it comes to theology, I was thinking of uh, my um, dear friend who died recently, and you know him, Luke, and probably you do, do Stuart, uh, Kenneth Leach. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, something of an early mentor, in fact. <laughs> ah, because because Ken, Ken was always astonished uh, when he was uh, uh, termed a liberal or classed with a liberal. And he said, in fact, he said, I'm not only um, not liberal in that sense at all. He said, I think of myself as an old-fashioned, papistical, Anglo-Catholic. And there, 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 there he is um, um, embracing a kind of radical anarchistic socialism. Uh, I also like that, that term interplay. And the interplay between past and present, I, I was reminded of... Uh, People often talk about the, the proverbial three-legged stool of Anglicanism uh, attributed to Richard Hooker. And it's always struck me that that image of a stool is misleading. 
because the stool is something that you sit on. Whereas what I think you find at its best in Anglicanism, including in Hooker, is not so much a stool as it is a kind of a spiral, a constant conversation between scripture, tradition, and reason, to which one might also add, some people add experience, and I would be tempted to add worship. Um, one of the things which is most interesting about Anglicanism is, is how much Anglicanism is formed not by doctrine. I was in reading uh, Luke's most recent book uh, and uh, being reminded again that Anglicans don't have a confessional statement of the same sort that Lutherans or Calvinists or Roman Catholics do. What we have is a prayer book, Lex Orendi, Lex Credendi, and it is this interplay uh, that, on the one hand, presents us with many of the um, tensions, many of the um, controversies that, that rend um, the church, and yet, on the other hand, are the source of so much that is creative, um, so much that is hopeful. Well, I have to say, it feels like we're we're just getting started, but unfortunately, we actually have to draw things to a close. So I, I want to thank you both again uh, for your time and for the, the fascinating conversation. Um, I'm sure that uh, our listeners would agree when I say that there were so many uh, interesting points of uh, intersection in both of uh, that we see in, in, in your, your scholarship and in your comments. So uh, thank you for uh, illuminating and enlightening us today on, on these uh, contested topics of democracy and socialism. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. Don't miss our next episode, Thursday, February 11th. We'll be talking with Tish Harrison Warren about her new book, Prayer in the Night, about navigating grief and doubt and praying Compline. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss that episode. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.